Hello, this is Daryl Bloodworth of the Episcopal Church of the Good Shepherd in Maitland, Florida. This is a continuation of our study of the Gospel of John. We're on Lesson 9, dealing with Chapter 8, and we pick up with verses 1 through 11 of the 8th chapter of John. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. Chapter 8 here picks up the day after the end of chapter 7. Jesus is still in Jerusalem, and he's returned to the temple. And again, he's, he's in one of the courtyards of the temple early in the morning to resume teaching. By now the scribes and Pharisees are determined to come up with legal grounds to charge Jesus with a violation of either Jewish law or Roman law. Either one would suffice to silence Jesus either temporarily or permanently. Failing that, they wanted to at least put Jesus in a bad light before the people so he would lose his popularity and no longer have a large following. An opportunity arises when a man and woman are caught in the very act of committing adultery. In other words, in flagrante delicto. The Jewish leaders learn of this and conspire to place Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. They bring the woman to Jesus, but interestingly, not the man who is equally guilty under the law and subject to the same punishment, stoning. They wanted to confront Jesus with the question of whether she should be put to death, as stated in the Law of Moses. Jesus has been preaching that we humans should not judge others and that we should be willing to forgive. The Sermon on the Mount covers this extensively. So if he says to carry out the death sentence, he will be acting contrary to what he has been preaching. He would also run afoul of the Romans, who had forbidden the Jews to carry out the death penalty without their consent. In fact, it was Pontius Pilate who instituted that rule. On the other hand, if he simply said, let her go, if she repents, he would be defying the Jewish law and thereby ruining his standing as a prophet. At least this is what the scribes and Pharisees thought. Now keep in mind the sole purpose of presenting the woman to Jesus was to force him to declare his ruling, and as a result, they hoped, to get rid of Jesus. John, in fact, whispers to us they did this to test Jesus, to find grounds to bring a legal charge against him. Well, Jesus' response to this situation was not at all what the Jewish leaders expected. He made no reply. 
Instead, he bent down and started writing on the ground, although John doesn't tell us what Jesus wrote. This just infuriated the Jewish leaders, and they continued to press him for an answer. Undoubtedly, they threw in a few taunts as well. Finally, Jesus straightens up and says, Let the one among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. What this does is shift the focus from the woman, who clearly violated the law, to those who would be her judges and executioners. Although we can't know for sure what Jesus was writing on the ground, many biblical scholars have opined that Jesus was writing a list of the sins of the Pharisees there, who would be her executioner. And that makes sense to me and would be consistent with the outcome of this encounter. Once Jesus makes his response, he bends over again and continues to write on the ground. Well, at this point, the Pharisees, beginning with the oldest, realize that it is they who are now in a predicament. If they continue to insist on putting the woman to death, they will be revealed as the hypocrites they are. So they begin to slip away one by one until all have left. Jesus then straightens up and asks the woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now try to put yourself in the woman's shoes at this point. She's committed a serious sin, and as a Jewish woman, she would have known how serious it was. In fact, it was a capital offense. Yet she did it anyway and was caught in the very act. She's then hauled into a courtyard of the temple by a group of scribes and Pharisees who are zealous to see the law enforced, which can only be done by putting her to death. Now, she was undoubtedly surprised they would take her to Jesus, and she had no idea this would help her cause, although, in fact, it turned out to be her salvation. After Jesus gives his response to the Pharisees, to let the one among you without sins be the first to throw a stone, she finds herself left alone with Jesus and probably a few of his disciples and followers. She still doesn't know what the outcome will be because Jesus hasn't announced his judgment. So Jesus asks her whether anyone has condemned her, and she responds, No one, sir. But she's still awaiting Jesus' verdict. She had, after all, been taken to him so he could pass judgment on her. But Jesus isn't there to be her judge. He's there to bring salvation. Just try to imagine her relief as Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. But keep in mind, he doesn't stop there. He tells her to go and sin no more. In essence, Jesus tells her that he forgives this sin. But it is a sin, and she must not commit this sin again. It's the same thing he tells us each time we go to him to repent and to seek forgiveness. To repent, we must turn in a different direction and avoid the sins of the past. We do this each time uh, we have communion. John tells us nothing more about this woman, but after such an encounter with Jesus, when she passes from being condemned to death to being set free within a few minutes, I can't help but believe she became a follower of Jesus. Let's pick up now with verses 12 through 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying on your own behalf. Your testimony is not valid. 
Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid because I know where I have come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is valid. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is valid. I testify on my own behalf, and the Father who sent me testifies on my behalf. Then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while he was teaching in the treasury of the temple. But no one arrested him, because his hour had not yet come. These verses are reminiscent of the arguments described in chapters 5 through 7, which we discussed previously. Here Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world. Now saying this during this festival of tabernacles would have been particularly striking because one of the significant events of the festival was the lighting of four very large candelabra at night which would light up the entire area. As they were lighting the candelabra, the prayer offered was, O Lord of the universe, thou commanded us to light the lamps to thee. Yet thou art the light of the world. You can imagine then when Jesus makes this statement that he was the light of the world. Soon after this prayer was offered, it would be shocking to the Pharisees and probably to anyone listening. Jesus is clearly making his claim to be from God. Well, the response of the Pharisees is the same as it was previously. They say to Jesus, you're testifying about yourself, and it isn't valid. Jesus responds as he did before, that his testimony is valid, because it's not only his testimony, but also his father's. So the Jews ask him again, where his father is? And Jesus responds, you know neither me nor my father. At this point, John whispers to us that all of this took place in the treasury of the temple. But again, no one arrested him, probably to avoid a riot breaking out. Let's pick up with verses 21 through 30. Again he said to them, I am going away, and you will search for me, but you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Then the Jews said, Is he going to kill himself? Is that what he means by saying, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. They said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Why do I speak to you at all? I have much to say about you and much to condemn, but the one who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will realize that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own. But I speak these things as the Father instructed me. And the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what is pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. 
These verses also continue some of the arguments Jesus had with the Jewish leaders. He says again he is going away, but they can't follow. Although they will search for him, they will die in their sins. The Jews' response to this was cynical and contemptuous. They asked, is he going to kill himself? Now this isn't asked out of concern, but to indicate what they thought of Jesus. The Jews believed that suicide was a sin, and that anyone who committed suicide was going straight to hell. Remember, they had already accused him of having a demon, so now they are saying they believe he will return to what they thought was his true home. Jesus' response is that you are the ones from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not. And he warns them they will die in their sins unless they believe that he is who he says he is. Well, their response to this is, who are you? To which a clearly frustrated Jesus responds, why do I talk to you at all? John tells us the Jews didn't understand that Jesus was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus gives them a hint of what to look for. He says when he is lifted up, and that is a clear reference to being crucified, and they would have understood that. They will finally realize who he is, that he came from the Father, and that he is speaking what he hears from the Father. John tells us that as a result of what he said, many believed in him, although clearly these believers didn't come from the scribes and the Pharisees. Let's continue now with verses 31 through 38. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are descendants of Abraham, and have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean by saying you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Very truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not have a permanent place in the household. The Son has a place there forever. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are descendants of Abraham, yet you look for an opportunity to kill me, because there is no place in you for my word. I declare what I have seen in the Father's presence. As for you, you should do what you have heard from the Father. Now in these verses, Jesus is addressing the Jews who believed in him and not the Jewish leaders. Although, as we'll see, these believers wind up arguing with Jesus just like the Jewish leaders have been doing. He tells them they must continue in his word to be his disciples. And the truth of his word will set them free. This puzzles them because they believe that by being descendants of Abraham, they had always been set free and not slave. Jesus quickly lets them know he is speaking of slavery to sin. They have become slaves to sin and can only obtain their freedom from him. He goes on to tell them he knows they are descendants of Abraham, but he implies they are not true descendants of Abraham because they are not acting as Abraham acted. Remember, Genesis 15 verse 6 tells us that Abraham believed the Lord, and he reckoned it to Abraham as righteousness. In other words, Abraham was in a righteous relationship with God because he believed God. Jesus is saying he is declaring what he hears in the Father's presence, and they should do what they hear from Jesus because it is from the Father. So let's continue on now with verses 39 through 59. 
They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are indeed doing what your father does. They said to him, we are not illegitimate children. We have one father, God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from from God, and now I am here. I did not come on my own, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot accept my word. You are from your father, the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is from God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not from God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever keeps my word will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say, Whoever keeps my word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? The prophets also died. Who do you claim to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me. He of whom you say he is our God, though you do not know him, but I know him. If I would say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your ancestor Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was... I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Well, these verses echo the earlier contentious arguments between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. They claim to be Abraham's children, but Jesus points out they are not acting as Abraham did. Instead, they are trying to kill him. Jesus says, you are acting like your father, implying Satan, And they claim God is their father, to which Jesus replies, essentially, well, you certainly aren't acting like it. He says, in effect, if you were of God, you would recognize the truth of what I say. Well, at this point, the crowd and the Jewish leaders resort to insult, saying Jesus is a demon-possessed Samaritan. You'll recall uh, we discussed that the Jews did not think very much of Samaritans, and here their leaders are coming up with the worst insult they can think of for Jesus, that being a demon-possessed Samaritan. Jesus flatly tells them he doesn't have a demon. They are just dishonoring him. Then he points out that those who believe in him will never see death. And further says that Abraham rejoiced that he would see Jesus' day. 
Of course, this statement totally blows their mind, and they ask whether Jesus, not yet being 50 years old, really claims to have seen Abraham. And Jesus' response enrages them further. He says, Before Abraham was, I am. This is a plain claim to divinity, calling himself I am. The same name God gave for himself when he confronted Moses at the burning bush, which is described in Exodus chapter 3. To the Jews, this was clearly and plainly blasphemy. And they picked up stones to stone Jesus to death. John uh, abruptly tells us uh, without detail that Jesus hid himself and left the temple. By now, the opposition to Jesus is clearly growing stronger and the final confrontation is growing closer. We'll pick up next time with Lesson 11 and cover Chapter 9.